entering the Freedom Hut. Democrats have a new strategy to deal with the implosion of the Mueller probe's credibility earlier this week. Pretend like it was just exactly what you thought it should be, and that it proves that you should maybe impeach the president and do more investigations. And, folks, the crazy is going to maximum levels, going to 11 out of 10 on the dial. We'll break down that and much more on a Freestyle Friday coming up. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make, Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Their party is in shambles right now. They've got the squad leading their party. They are a mess. This was a devastating day for the Democrats. The Democrats thought they could win an election like this. I think they hurt themselves very badly for 2020. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. In a normal, sane world, the Democrats would feel like this week went really badly for them. And some of them might be willing to reevaluate a little bit about whether they were fair toward this president or even maybe just they should stop being so wildly unfair to this president. It's not something like that, you know, would. But oh, no. Oh, no. This this Democrat Party has become so radical, so left wing and so overtaken with a psychotic hatred of President Trump, who, by the way, you know, another good quarter of growth today. You know, that doesn't even really get much of the headlines. You know, GDP strong, economy's great, you know, not no major wars right now, no huge military escalations for no reason. You know, you look at all these different things going on. Trump, finally, we're, we're going to have uh, the head of Customs and Border Patrol joining in the next hour to give you some some breaking news on Positive stuff going on, deal with the migrant crisis, thanks to the Trump administration. But overall, you look at what you can measure, what matters, what's happening, and things are good. They hate him even more because of that. Trump's record as president is a refutation of so many people's assessments of him, of his politics, of how it would go for the country. It's a repudiation of it, really. It's an annihilation. It shows you that these people who said that Trump was going to destroy the economy and there was going to be riots in the streets and all this stuff. No. All of that was either a lie or evidence of some very inexplicable anxiety and stupidity that uh, overrode all the normal analytic processes of of people on the left and some on the right too about politics and what's going on in the country basically trump doing well means that people who hate trump are even angrier because they look stupid because they told us not only were we making the wrong decision morally and ethically and all the rest about trump oh but he's going to ruin everything he hasn't ruined anything he's actually made things a lot better more startups, more business transactions, more prosperity, more, you know, all this stuff. So what do they do? Do they try to come up with, do the Democrats reevaluate and say, you know, we should figure something out here. 
We should come together, make a plan, grow the economy, you know, whatever. The usual politician razzle-dazzle. No. No, no, no. They will not leave this Russia collusion delusion behind. They will not stop pushing it. They will not stop talking about it. They are true believers in this whole thing. And that's just the way that it's going to be. Or or they're the biggest fraudsters in the world. I, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, this is this is what you hear from Nancy Pelosi after we saw that the Mueller investigation was all designed. It was specifically designed so that we wouldn't have clarity about who was really running it. Bunch of Democrats who hate Trump, Hillary partisans. That's who was running the Mueller probe. Democrat lawyers for Hillary. All of them. Oh, but they put this Republican... Uh, you know, elder statesman of of the FBI on top of the whole thing. So how bad could it really be? Oh, it turns out he had no idea what's going on. He, I mean, he might as well he might as well have been fly fishing the whole time while Weissman was actually running stuff because that's what happened. What does Pelosi say after this? Does she say we're going to focus on health care and the economy and what we're going to do for the American people? Nope. She goes back to the Democrat crazies' greatest hits of Russia, Russia, Russia. In January, you wondered what Putin had on Trump. After yesterday, are you any closer to figuring that out? We have over in the courts right now. Are you any closer to figuring out what Putin has on Trump? That's why we need to have to to answer our subpoena. Do you still think Putin might have some sort of blackmail on the president? I wonder what Putin has politically, financially, or personally. So our president could be subject to blackmail, you think? There you have the most powerful Democrat in the country wondering aloud whether the pres- the current president of the United States is being blackmailed by a, a hostile foreign power. What evidence does she have for this? Zero evidence. Zero evidence. These are the same individuals. The same individuals who turn around and at every opportunity tell us that, you know, Trump is a liar and Trump, Trump you know, is always playing fast and loose with the facts. And yet Pelosi is just openly smearing this guy, smearing the president of the United States. She has no evidence of this at all, or for this at all. You know, the foreign policy, if you look at it, of the United States is not at all what a person who is familiar with foreign policy would expect if Putin were blackmailing the president of the United States. Really? Do Do we want... Russia is backing Maduro in Venezuela. We're backing Guaido. You don't, you don't think, and, and very, pretty aggressively, openly. How do you explain that? You know, Putin's, well, where is the stuff happening where he's doing Putin's bidding? That used to be the story here with all the sanctions against the Russians that we have, because those are all in place. With, because Trump doesn't sit down and, and spit in the leader of Russia's face when they have meetings, He's not tough enough on Russia. Meanwhile, I mean, Obama was just, just Obama and his foreign policy team were just getting clowned all over the world, constantly. I mean, it made us look like we were we were the weak horse, and whatever country we were dealing with was the strong horse. That that was the approach of the Obama administration, and we're all sick of that.
should never have been that way, but it wasn't. So, so Pelosi's saying maybe they've got stuff on Trump, and oh, just for good measure, maybe they need to uh, move a little bit further on. I- instead of going forward with impeachment proceedings, what you see now is they're going to re- they're going to act like there's a process that needs to play out first because. What do we know? What is one of the most important maxims of this show? When you're dealing with leftists and statists, the process is the punishment. That's how they plan to punish the administration, to continue this narrative, to make people have to play defense for the administration about Russia stuff. Oh, well, what about the impeachment hearings that Democrats have put forward? They won't commit to impeachment because they don't. I was going to say they don't have the courage of their convictions with Democrats in Congress. It's just enough to say they don't have courage. But here's Pelosi telling you that, you know, it's going to happen. Not sure when, but not committing to impeachment, not saying we're not just going to kind of move the ball downfield, see what happens. We won't proceed when we have what we need to proceed. Not one day sooner. And everybody has the liberty and the luxury to espouse their own position and to criticize me for trying to go down the path in the most determined, positive way. Again, their advocacy for impeachment only gives me leverage. The president has obstructed justice. You know what he said. He could have exonerated him. He would have, but he didn't. But he was not able to investigate the president's finances, personal business or otherwise. And that is what we are doing in the courts. Ah, yes. Lawsuits and more lawsuits. That's what they plan on doing here. Uh, and what's the next step? Jerry Nadler. He, he took a break from having his, uh, his pants and his belt up around his chin to try and get the grand jury material. See, the Mueller report... They've squeezed everything they can out of it. So what's the next move? Oh, there are things in the Mueller report that we need now that we weren't given in the past. So here's Nadler getting that whole narrative ready. Finally, today, we are filing an application for the grand jury material underlying the Mueller report. That information is critically important for our ability to examine witnesses, including former White House counsel Don McGahn, and to investigate the president's misconduct. I will not comment on reports of our ongoing negotiations with Mr. McGahn, but unless he complies with our accommodation efforts in very short order, we expect to file an additional suit to enforce our subpoena for his testimony. They want the grand jury material that was only accessed by Mueller and his team under the under, with the understanding that they would not release this information. We had this whole process of scrubbing because grand jury information is specially protected under DOJ guidelines. So what are they doing now? Oh, we need the information. The Democrats are saying they need the information that they have been specifically denied with good reason under long-standing practice that has that did not come into play just because of Trump or Russia collusion or anything else. This is the way it has always been. I believe it's 6E grand jury materials, what they call it. And the, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to see that because those proceedings are secret for good reason. 
So now they're going to say, we need the information that we're not allowed to see. And of course, because of course they want to leak it, whatever it is, right? They, they want to leak whatever they can that's going to be, if it's even damaging from a perception standpoint, that's the plan. But the more likely situation, and now that the rest know this, is now that Mueller has just imploded for them as their great, you know, their great knight who's going to slay the dragon. Now the next move is, well, they won't give us the full Mueller report. And that's where the secret the secret sauce can be found. That's the the if if only we could see the what is it, three percent or five percent or something? I think it's three percent of the Mueller report that's redacted. Then we'd be able to get to the truth about Trump. So they're going to say, look at this hand over here. This is the we are trying to get access to information that we're not supposed to be able to see. And while we're not getting that information, we're just going to grind on with this process of subpoenas and, and harassment. This is the modern Democratic Party, folks. This is no ethics, no good faith, no decency, just just bare knuckle partisan warfare doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what they have to do to the rule of law in this process doesn't matter how much it is a a waste of government resources and time they were wrong this is what they just can't get through their little heads on the left there was no collusion and no functioning human being with good judgment would look at what happened with trump where he did not shut down this investigation. He complied with this investigation. It was an investigation that was a scam and a sham to begin with. Nobody look at that and say, yeah, okay. So we ambushed Trump with this crazy, fake Russia collusion narrative, put him through this horrible investigation, threatened people around him with prison, sent some people to prison. But because he said some stuff in frustration about it, now we're going to get him on obstruction. I mean, this is just... There's no justice here at all. The Democrats don't care about justice at all. They don't care about what's fair. They don't care about what's decent, what's honorable. They embrace dishonesty. And what they have done this week is double down in their dishonesty. This is who we are up against. It's the same mentality that brought us the, the assault on Kavanaugh. The evidence doesn't matter. The system doesn't really matter who you heard in the process, whatever lies you have to tell, whatever delusions you have to feed this rabid, liberal, insane voter base, that's what you do. Anything goes as long as it benefits the left because they think they're they're crusaders against this horrifying Trump administration that's managed to be the... This is, this is the best... This is the best period, and I, I was thinking about this this week. I mean, the, President Trump has done a better job as president these last two years than any president in my adult lifetime. And I just say adult lifetime because I can't really—I didn't really pay attention when I was a teenager. I don't really remember Reagan. I was a toddler. But in my adult lifetime, if you're looking at Bush, Obama, Trump, none of them, neither of them, or I should say Bush, Clinton— well, no, Bush would have been too young. Anyway, Clinton, Bush, Obama, none of them have had two years that they could put together from their presidency that were as prosperous, stable, and good for the American people as what we just had with Trump, despite the special counsel investigation. He showed that the Trump campaign both welcomed and benefited from this attack on our country. And he showed that the president repeatedly lied to cover it up. 
And if that were not enough, Director Mueller's testimony removed all doubt. They don't know what they're talking about anymore. It, it doesn't even matter. They, they just make it up. I mean, I mean, Director Mueller looked like he didn't know what state he was in for most of that testimony. To think that that did anything other than undermine the entire Mueller probe is to live in a fantasy, but the the thing that we all now have to deal with is that Democrats are living in a fantasy on this thing. And now it's all about election security and Russia. Here's the prediction that I have to make for you today. If Trump wins again, and I, you're, you're going to say, some of you are going to throw something at the, at the wall or you know, you're going to pound the steering wheel when you hear this, because I think you're going to, you know that I'm right. If Trump wins again, and I think he will, although I'm going to stop saying that because I don't want to jinx it. If Trump wins again, they're going to, there will be a large contingent of the Democratic Party and the media that says Russia helped him again. I, I, it sound, it's so crazy that to say that today, you're like, there's just, come on, man, there's no way. Way, dude. That's what I'm telling you. They're going to say that Russia helped again. And you say, Buck, but they won't, but, they're, they're, but how are we going to stop? How are we going to know? All they have to do, if they find, you know, three Facebook posts with some Cyrillic on them that say, you know, make America great again from a guy named Yuri or Oleg, they're going to say, oh my gosh, Russia, collusion, all just, this is what they've done. You can't disprove it. You can't make them not believe this. The evidence no longer matters to them. It never mattered to them. This is about an emotion for them now. This is just their state of mind is such they cannot handle. They are too psychologically fragile to deal with the recognition of all this Russia stuff, whatever, as a as just an exaggerated series of lies and smears and they're never going to stop. And this is what we see now. It doesn't matter what we find out. They're never going to stop. And the Inspector General report is going to make them look like a, a bunch of complete hacks and liars. That's not going to stop them either, folks. So I'm just trying to prepare you. Get ready. Russia delivered Trump 2020. You watch. It's going to happen. We are at war. It is time for the Democrats to wake up. We are playing against cheaters and liars or stealers. And with all due respect to Michelle Obama, when they go high and when they go low, we got to do whatever we have to do. There are two takeaways from Mueller that we're going to use as we go to war. Number one, the president broke the law. And when he's out of office, he can go and will go to jail And number two, we are vulnerable with our election systems. That's our two things. We may not have won the battle of impeachment, but we're going to win the war of putting him in jail, whatever we have to do. And we're not going to necessarily play fair. Oh, they're not going to play fair now, folks. That's Donnie Deutsch over at MSNBC. Oh, oh, now the gloves come off. After a two-year special counsel investigation run by a bunch of hyper-partisan Democrats hiding behind the resume and, and, and story of Bob Mueller, who was not running this thing. That's, that's, that was the big, oh my gosh, moment we saw on Wednesday. After that, after the lies, after the dirty dossier, after hiding the origin of the funding for the dossier from the American people as long as they possibly could, 
after all the things that we have seen up to this point that prove there was collusion between a, a between foreigners and the DNC and people in the FBI to try to concoct a story to destroy the the Trump campaign and then the Trump presidency after all that now the takeaway from some of these loony libs is we we have to actually fight dirty i don't know how much dirtier it would be possible for them to fight impeachment may not work so now we're going to send trump to prison you see i don't believe that the democrats can and the leftists on tv who are just democrat activists with television cameras around them i think that they they realize They've propagandized their audience so much. I mean, they've done so much damage with the brainwashing of the libs. The brainwashing of the libs. That's what they should. They should do a CNN primetime show called Brainwashing You, Libs. Maybe somebody would watch that. Uh, that they can't walk it back now. They can't actually say to their audience, you know, Rachel Maddow at MSNBC cannot say, hey, uh, you know how I was saying that there was going to be a smoking gun and a. No, no, they're, they're just going to stay with this. Oh, we don't have the we can't prove he didn't do it. So then we're just going to say he did do it. The same leftists who lecture us all the time about how Trump doesn't tell the truth and Trump needs to be more honest and blah, all this stuff. Right. The same whiny libs who are telling us that, that they're the ethical you know, truth tellers and Trump is such a big liar and everything else. Now that they're presented with even more facts about the Mueller, the Mueller probe, about Russia-Trump collusion, all of this, their response is, well, he's going to go to prison anyway. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, oh, he's not the only one, Donnie Deutsch. I mean, over at MSNBC, you also had Mitch, I mean, you had uh, Joe Scarborough, who's going after Cocaine Mitch. And I've got to say, you go after Cocaine Mitch, you best not miss. I think Scarborough here missed by a mile. You have the Republican Trump appointed FBI director saying that the Russians infiltrated America's democracy and are going to try again. Moscow Mitch calls it a hoax. He is aiding and abetting Vladimir Putin's ongoing attempts to subvert American democracy, according to the Republican FBI, CIA, DNI, Intel Committee, directors. All Republicans are all saying Russia is subverting American democracy, and Moscow Mitch won't even let the Senate take a vote on it. That is un-American. Well, I guess when you have a really stupid point to make, you should just yell it. When you want to sound like a total jackass who doesn't know anything, just scream it, Joe. Now, look, Scarborough is, uh, you know, whoever pays him, that's what he says, right? Wherever he has to go, I mean, the guy's guy's a media careerist, I understand. He has no principles. It's just, it changes with whatever. Because he was a a Trump loyalist for a while, folks. But then Trump decided he didn't really like Joe and Mika. And then it became personal. And ever since then, Joe Scarborough has been part of the hashtag resistance. And he's the conservative He's supposed to be the conservative over at MSNBC. And he still claims to be one. I will also tell you he has, I will, I will say this, um, I, I've heard from people he is not a nice guy. 
at all. I don't know him. I've never worked with him, but I've heard he is not a good dude. So, uh, but his his point here is is stupid. It's not even a smart point. Uh, take a vote on what? Uh, an election security measure? What are they going to do? They're going to set up some more cybersecurity stuff? This is all just nonsense. There was not a single vote change. The voting machines are independent, air-gapped. Uh, to, to suggest that they could hack into our democracy and all this stuff, yeah, they, they, they ran some propaganda on Facebook. Who cares? Google is pretending to be a platform that doesn't skew search results, and it's run by a bunch of left-wing maniacs. I think that's a bigger deal. That's a bigger fraud against the American people. I mean, you want to talk about what they would call, you know, there's white, gray, and black propaganda. White propaganda is what I do. Here's what I think. Here's what you should think. And it's coming from me, and I'm honest, and I'm telling you it, right? Gray propaganda is, oh, I'm just going to put leaflets out on you know, on your front door and you're not going to wear it, but it's going to say, you know, vote Republican because X, Y, or Z. And then black, what so-called black propaganda, it's like black ops, right? You, you obscure the, or lie about the uh, team you are playing for, the origins of it. So if I pass around a letter saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, this is coming from Democrat Bob and you should vote Republican this year, sign Democrat Bob, then that's black propaganda. Uh, that's what the social media platforms are doing. They pretend to be something that they're not in order to sway opinion. But, I mean, bring it back to Russia for a second. Let let me just say, when will it be enough? We're now back to Russia hysteria again? We have to hear once again from these these crazy leftists about all all things Russia election interference? Russia has always interfered in our elections. We interfere in other people's elections. Unless we're talking about changing vote counts, it is not possible to stop foreign interference. When, when, a, when a foreign leader says that they don't like the policies of the current president, that's interfering in the election in some way. Right? We're talking about perception battles. We're talking about information in an instantaneous news environment with the Internet connecting all of us together. All this whining and crying about Russian interference in the election. What are these people talking about? There is no Russian interference in the election never right now. They don't even to know who the, the Republicans the running against. States they need again. to take a this chill is a pill. absolute catastrophe for our country. This was a fake witch hunt, and it should never be allowed to happen to another president again. This was treason. This was high crimes. This was everything as as bad a definition as you want to come up with. This should never be allowed to happen to our country again. I saw somebody who did not want to be used and abused by people. I also saw somebody who, it's not clear to me, was in charge of his own investigation, or most of it. I also saw someone who, I, I read the polls that very few Americans say they've read the Mueller report. I'd like to know if that number includes Bob Mueller himself. I think that Mueller read the executive summary and was briefed on stuff, but do I think that Mueller ever sat down and read the whole thing and, and, and tried to digest it and understand it? Nope, I do not. Do I think that Mueller would pass a, a basic test on the different... Well, I think he failed that test, really, when he gave the testimony. So we know that he would not, he would not pass it. 
Um, that then leaves what's going to come next here. What's going to happen after all of this? Um, you have on the good side, on the side of, of truth, justice, and, and liberty, you have the effort to find out what exactly went on here with the Steele dossier, with the uh, FISA applications. And there's some very important points that the Inspector General report and the Bill Barr investigation, which is separate from the Inspector General report, Bill Barr appointed someone to look into all of this from from a, a U.S. attorney from Connecticut. Uh, they're going to find out what did they do to entrap Papadopoulos, for example. Remember, there's this meeting, and this is supposed to be the beginning of this whole mess. The official opening of the FBI full field investigation was because. A guy said a thing to Papadopoulos, and then Papadopoulos said a thing he heard from a guy, Mifsud, to Downer, who is a, a Australian diplomat. And that's what the – this is all just pretext. This was all concocting some excuse to open this investigation because of all the other stuff that had been going on before it. See, we need to find out what that was. What was the stuff that was happening before? What were the things that were going on here in advance of the FBI's real opening of the investigation, which we've all known is a lie. I mean, there's no way they just said, oh, we heard, we got this tip. Now we're going to look into Papadopoulos. They were clearly top people of the FBI, DOJ, intelligence community, perhaps foreign intelligence allies as well, which wouldn't that be undue election interference from a foreign government? Let's just establish this now. If, let's say, the Brits or the Russians or whomever passed along information oh but they did do that didn't they christopher Steele is a foreigner and was tied to the british government british intelligence and was using russian sources but let's say that the fbi even earlier than we knew was duped by foreign sources wouldn't that be foreign interference in our election hmm and what if the fbi went along with it knowing that it was coming from foreigners and said, okay, well, we're going to look more into this Papadopoulos guy. Now that you've told us about all the backstory, why we should be concerned about Papadopoulos, now we're going to come up with an excuse, which was the Mifsud telling him about the Hillary emails, and then, and then him allegedly, although he denies that this is how it happened, telling Downer, Alexander Downer, about this. That's how I see this happening. Because here's what I'm very confident about. Uh George Papadopoulos was set up. There was exculpatory information. And we're going to find out that the fix was in against him all along. And by fix, I mean the exculpatory information was hid from the FISA court. And look, they, they were just this was this was the, you know, counterintelligence investigation equivalent in an election year of the cop who wants to take out somebody on behalf of the mob. So, you know, he, he says that he went on a, on a drug raid at a house and there was an informant there and the, the informant pulled a gun and the cop actually planted the gun. I mean, it's just all manufactured. This is law enforcement in the, at the top level of the FBI because they're a bunch of institutionalists and a bunch of Trump haters and Democrats, by the way, a lot of them. Uh, deciding to use the powers that they have to abuse the authority and the power that they have in order to create a a damaging uh, situation for for Trump and really to stop 
the, stop Trump from being president of the United States. That's what they're that's what they're hoping to accomplish or, or, or destroy his presidency as well. That's certainly part of this. But does this stop them at all? No, of course, we, we know that now they're the Democrats are talking about going forward with impeachment proceedings. They have not been chastened at all. In fact, they are somewhat emboldened because once you've gone crazy, why not double down on crazy? The facts already don't matter to the left. They don't care what comes out of the Mueller probe, the Mueller investigation, the testimony, any of it. They're not going to care what the inspector general report says. I can I can promise you that much. And they're going to find other ways to continue their practice of lawfare against this administration and all the top people around President Trump, including his family members, including Elijah Cummings, for example, talking about how they want to harass Ivanka Trump. Oh, we don't have Elijah Cummings talking about it. So I I just I had the wrong clip. She doesn't matter. Here's what he said. There are serious questions about this White House use of personal email. And then Chip Roy says, where's the probable cause? And Cummings says, come on, we don't need probable cause. Yep. That's right. We don't need probable cause, folks. That, that should be the new, the new Democrat slogan here for everything. Rule of law doesn't matter. Probable cause doesn't matter. As, as long as it is in some way damaging for Trump, damaging for the Trump presidency, Democrats will go for it. Um, and, and I think that that's because they ultimately know that they cannot. I think that, that part of this is driven by the fact they can't beat this president and they, they must know that at some level, unless they pull off some, you know, another soft coup, essentially. I mean, unless they figure out some way to use the law or or to jam up the president in the last. They're, they're either going to pull some dirty trick on him or they're going to just pray that the economy gets terrible and that millions of Americans lose their jobs and that they'll be able to blame Trump for all of that, because otherwise... They're, they're just heading for an L here, folks. They're heading for a loss. And at some level, they've got to know that. I mean, they've got to know that it is unrealistic, unrealistic for any of these candidates that they're putting up to run against Trump to really be able to, to, uh, to take the 2020 election. I, I don't think that there's – well, I don't know. The Democrats are really delusional, so maybe, maybe they are uh, – maybe they're actually just holding out for – Beto to make his big comeback. Like, I know you guys lost faith in me for a while, but I'm just like here and I wrote a song for your girlfriend and I'm just going to sing it for her. But I promise I'm just her friend, but I'm going to sing it now. Yeah, that guy, Beto O'Rourke, you know, I'm talking about maybe they think he's going to be Trump. That's how crazy they are. Team, you know that of all the issues we cover here on the Buck Sexton Show, immigration is at the very top of the list. The crisis at our southern border is something that we are never going to forget about. We're not going to focus on everything at the expense of one of the most important policy issues out there. We are fortunate to be joined now by Mark Morgan, who is acting commissioner of Customs and Border Patrol, CBP. He's got some breaking news he can talk to us about and also just give us the latest on the migrant crisis at our southern border. Uh, Commissioner, uh, thanks so much for joining. We appreciate it. You bet, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start first with the the breaking news here, which just came out uh, right as we came on air, that Guatemala does have an agreement now with the U.S. government to deal with the migrant crisis. Tell us what you can about that. So 
Buck, I think you phrased it right. Is is we we need to make sure that we're calling this accurately, and it's it's an agreement. And basically, what it says is it's that the country of Guatemala has now, uh, and, and it still needs to be ratified. But but initially, they they have agreed with with the United States that they are actually going to um, become a, a country where those coming from another country into Guatemala, that they're going to agree to provide them adequate access to protection from whatever country they're fleeing from. Uh, this, this, this potentially could be a game changer. And what, what does this mean, by the way, for the flow of migrants? I mean, how, how would this work? that just kind of like the, the interim federal uh, uh, regulation that, that was uh, recently enjoined in, in California is that any, any migrant coming from another country into Guatemala that they have to claim asylum in Guatemala instead of, right, so that, that reduces the flow of these individuals, uh, you know, uh, uh, going across multiple countries and then deciding where they want to uh, claim asylum. And this, what this is, is that Guatemala has agreed that they will be a, a country that will provide adequate protection to those that are fleeing persecution. Now, why doesn't Mexico yet have a similar agreement with us? So we're working on that. We're still at the table with Mexico. And so what, what Mexico right now, though, is, is they are providing, you know, just unprecedented operational support right now. Uh, I, I think right now they, they've got about 25,000 uh, uh, troops, National Guard and law enforcement, uh, several thousand at their southern border that they're strengthening. Uh, they're, they're assisting as well at the U.S. And, and Mexico border, and they're increasing their interior enforcement as well. So, so they, they have stepped up operationally, but uh, we're still at the table to see if they'll come and, and sign a similar agreement that, that Guatemala just did. Are you you're, so you're hopeful that might get done? There might be a, a safe third country agreement with that would mean then Guatemala and Mexico. Uh, would we want one with El Salvador as well? Or I guess no one's stopping in El Salvador asking for it. But but do they have a role to play in that too? They they, they do, and, and and you know. So I just got done talking to the uh, the, the ministers of security for the Northern Triangle countries this week, and, and the one thing that, that we're all in agreement upon, and I think that one thing that this agreement shows is that it's a regional responsibility. It's not the responsibility of a single country. The unprecedented illegal migration that we're, we're experiencing right now is not just a Mexico issue. It's not just a United States issue. It's not just a Northern Triangle country issue. It is a regional issue, and I think that that's what this agreement expresses. But and shows, but but I also think that what Mexico is doing from an operational standpoint also shows that this is a shared regional responsibility. And just real quick, so so the MPP, and this is important for the American people. So the Migrant Protection Protocol, and what that says is that someone coming to, to the United States uh, uh, filing for asylum, we're actually making them wait in Mexico while they go through the asylum process instead of coming in the country and going into the interior of the United States never to be heard from again. And to date, right now, Mexico. Mexico has stepped up, and we've got almost 24,000 individuals that are waiting in Mexico right now going through asylum, instead of us holding them in or letting them in the United States. Now tell me about, and we're speaking to uh, Mark Morgan, everybody, Acting Commissioner for CBP, Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, I have some some uh, fr- uh, friends and associates in conservative media, the President's son, uh, Steve Bannon, a whole bunch of folks who are down right now in El Paso holding an event about building a wall, fence, whatever we choose to call it. What is the status? I mean, the president has been bringing up the fence. He says it's being built. 
There, I know there's upgraded fence, but what is the status of it? And, and also, how would it help given the migrant crisis we're seeing? So I, I think we need to be very clear on this. So there is absolutely new wall new wall that has been built is is continuing to be built and more is going to be built. Right now 52 miles of new wall has been built in strategic locations. And let me let me just really quickly explain why I can say new wall. So it, for example, if you go and there's there was a pedestrian barrier that was there. It, it's these these metal X's that are a couple of feet tall. Now when you go in and now you take that away and you put in a 30 foot wall system uh, that, that has lighting, has a, a degree of technology and access roads, that is absolutely a new wall. 52 miles of new walls been built. Another 52 miles of walls under contract and, and is going to be uh, under construction soon. And then within the next 18 months, another 100 miles of, of new wall to include 97 miles of new linear wall in the RGV area is going to be built. That's going to be a combination of 205 miles of new wall. If we can get the DOD funding release, we're going to have an additional 250 miles. That's almost 450 miles of new wall that will be built. And how how much of the wall then would, you know, of the areas where we need wall, what do, what would that cover if we get to that, what do you say, 400 plus? Yeah, for, exactly. So so you, you take the 450 miles that we're anticipating to be built, again, if we can get that DOD funding release, plus the, the adequate wall that, that's already in place, you're, you're getting really close to having the, the, the infrastructure that you need in the majority of the strategic locations along the southwest border. Because, Buck, we talked about before, one of the false narratives out there is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's been asked to have a wall along all 2,000 miles. Well, no, that's false. That's never been asked. Uh, you, you talk to the experts, Border Patrol, they've always said, they will continue to say, we just need the wall as part of that multi-layer strategy of infrastructure, technology, and personnel in strategic locations. Uh, th- this is going to get the job done. All right, everybody. Mark Morgan, Acting Commissioner of Customs and Border Patrol. Mark, always appreciate you joining us, sir. Good luck to you, and come back soon. Okay, thanks, Bob. See, you guys, there's there's wall being built. You know, Trump always gets a lot of gets a lot of heat from the media whenever he says that, and people say, "Oh, it's not true." Well, there you have a guy who is in charge of CBP right now, who's saying, "Yeah, there is wall being built, folks." And once you get up to four hundred or so miles of it, now you're now you're creating, even in the areas where there isn't physical barrier, you're creating choke points where they can, they can adequately police them and prevent them from becoming areas where uh, there will have to be areas where you need wall in the first place. Because if you can stop people, if you can prevent them from, from getting through with the, with the existing structure that you have, because the resources you can deploy, then you don't necessarily need wall in there. So anyway, it's interesting to hear from somebody who's on the front lines there. I always like when we get to hear from uh, Mark Morgan over at CBP. We'll be right back. It does happen sometimes that there's something fascinating to read in the New York Times. And that happened in the last uh, couple of days here. Uh, that the de- And it, it's about the Democratic Party and what's really going on in the Democratic Party right now in America. The, the title is, and look, it's, it's an opinion piece, but it's based on the numbers. Uh, the Democratic Party is actually three parties. And this this goes over, you know, Pew Research data, Brookings Institution data, looking at Democratic primary voters. And 
you know, what what you find out is that there are there are really three different parties within the Democratic Party. You have a uh, a group. Uh, you have the the far left. You have a you have moderate Democrat minorities, and then you have uh, these centrist Democrat establishment types, right? But the the most interesting. The most interesting part of this whole study was that the craziest people in the Democratic Party when it comes to policy. I mean, this stuff, the Green New Deal stuff and oh, oh, oh and, and you just go down the list, you know, single payer and you know, radical economic theories like modern monetary theory, all of that, all of those things, uh, they are. Common among the white college educated liberal, the, the, the craziest stuff that the Democratic Party, the, the, the majority of those who hold the most left wing views are white college educated liberals. And, and what's interesting is that uh, when you look at the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party based on policy, not based on 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 who they vote for, you know, what, what politicians they vote for, but based on policy, uh, a majority of black and Latino Democrats are focused on creating jobs and the economy. So, you know, there, in a sense, I mean, this tells us what we already know. Uh, and then you also have the, the more centrist establishment wing of the Democratic Party, which is not not calling the shots these days. Uh, he, here's what it says. The Democratic opinion gulf. Percentage of Democrats and independents who lean Democratic. There's a chart, which I can't show you because we're on a radio show. But while 72% of very liberal Democrats want candidates to protect immigrants, 42% of moderate to conservative Democrats share that priority. 66% of very liberal groups want candidates to aggress, uh, address race and gender issues compared with 42% of the moderates. There, there is, based on the data here, the people that are the most obsessed with uh, social justice in the Democratic Party, a majority of them are the white liberals, the white far-left, coastal, generally millennial, and whatever comes before millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, that's who's the most obsessed with the social justice stuff. Minority Democrat voters, a majority of them are like, you know, can we get the, can we have more jobs and have a better economy? And it's more transactional in nature. They want the government to do good things that will benefit them. We can disagree over whether the things they want them to do will work out well or not. But, you know, I can sit down with with any person, but I could certainly sit down with a, a Democrat who's uh, black, Hispanic, you know, any any other or, or 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 any ethnicity and have a conversation about, you know, government jobs programs, training programs, how we can create new jobs. That's a conversation I want to have. The people that are really pushing for like radical transformation of the country and who are are trying to always use identity politics and and are obsessed with how Donald Trump is a racist. And this is what they want to focus in on. Talk about climate change. Those are the white, the white far left liberals of the party. I just thought this was a really, uh, really interesting breakdown of, of the numbers statistics. It was in the New York Times, uh, which which also 
it, it tracks with my my sense of this, which is that the most annoying Democrats to talk to are I mean, the ones where I, I can I can have very hard, a very hard time even getting them to agree that up is up and, you know, left is left and right is right uh, are smug, white, elitist, coastal lips. That's if, if I'm looking at the people that I, that I have the hardest time having a conversation with <laughs> about politics, if you're going to break it down by demographic, those are the ones where I'm just like, you're, they're just living in, in an alternate universe. And if you sit down with somebody who's, you know, a, a, an African-American, you know, state, uh, state assemblyman from, you know, I, I don't know, from, from South Carolina, and he wants to talk about jobs and better schools and, you know, I'm like, yeah, let, let's have let's have that conversation. You know, you sit down with I'm not saying, of course, there are different you know, minorities on the left can be just as radical as the. But I find it interesting that the, the majority of minority Democrats are focused on what I would call real stuff, real issues you know, of governance and the Looney Tunes crazy stuff on the far left. That comes from smug white liberals. They're, they're the ones that are pushing the stuff that you're just like, what, what are we even, you know, 37 genders and, oh, you have to do the waxing procedure for the for the transgender female who is actually male and has male parts. That's all coming from, you know, D.C., New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. That's where you're getting that stuff, you know, the, the big city. So anyway, I, I just found it to be a really interesting uh data breakdown in the New York Times. And then you also have one other one other piece today that I just wanted to bring to your attention. And look, it's how many people are really going to read this? And, you know, I, I don't know, but it is indicative of how really just delusional the uh, the left is. Um, and particularly feminists. I mean, I think modern feminism has just collapsed into uh, self-contradiction, viciousness, and anti-male, anti-male insanity. I mean, it doesn't even. They're saying things now that are just objectively not true. The feminist movement is increasingly being co-opted by the transgender movement because these progressive groups like to form these coalitions. Meanwhile, what is why does feminism exist if anybody can be a woman just by saying they feel like one? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you, they they haven't worked out here, but this. Uh, this piece came out today from BigThink.com that lists the 10 most dangerous countries in the world for women. 10 most dangerous countries in the world. And the list is what I would expect. I mean, if someone had asked me, what are the 10 worst countries in the world for women in terms of rights and safety? Absolutely uh, Afghanistan, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Yemen, Nigeria, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Those are all countries that I would probably say and I certainly would would think should be included on on this list. But the United States also got put on this list. You know, I, I, what is it what does it have to what do we have to get to? I mean, how much stupidity do we have to choke down before we're allowed to say that any person who believes that america is one of the 10 worst countries in the world to be a woman is too stupid to have an opinion on anything 
Never mind to be cited as they were in this study. You might say, Buck, where'd they get this study? They talked to, quote, hundreds of experts in women's issues all over the world. That's what they did for the study. So they more or less went around to women and gender studies majors and said, uh, what do you think? You know, pe- people, they went around to the global feminist community and they named all these countries where women do have, uh, they do not have equal rights. They, they are treated terribly. But then they threw America on the list, too, you know, as if as if the Me Too movement belongs alongside a discussion of what happens to women in Afghanistan, which is so oppressive toward uh, toward women and is is so uh, debasing of women that I would hesitate to get into descriptions of what I know occurs in that country here on the show. But there's no there's no limitation on the left's crazy. That's. One thing that we see increasingly uh, across the country, I mean, the, and, and around the world, but feminists really, feminism is now intellectually bankrupt. I mean, there's, I do not see any uh, interesting or insightful, even if I disagree with it, I, I do not have respect for what I'm seeing from the left wing feminists. Well, all feminists are left wing now because they've appropriated this term, uh, they've taken over this term. I, I see nothing intellectually worthwhile coming out of the feminist movement, really ever. Earlier this month, our friend Andy No, a, a journalist who covers Antifa on the West Coast, he was uh, viciously assaulted in a, in a gang attack by Antifa domestic terrorists, and they caused a brain hemorrhage. They really, really hurt him, really messed him up, and uh, there have been no arrests yet. It's a complete disgrace. The Portland Police Department should be ashamed of itself, but I know they're on the orders of the mayor of Portland, who's clearly a loon, not to do anything to upset the fine citizens of, uh, you know, of Portland who are members of Antifa. But Andy went on my old show on Rising on the Hill and had a, uh, had the ability to, or had the, the opportunity, I should say, to respond as to why, why is it that he focuses on Antifa and it creates as my old co-host said, a, an equivalency with white nationalists who are all supposed to be really scared of. I mean, this is one of the places where left and right just diverge. It's like we're living in a different country. White nationalism is not a threat that normal people are concerned about. I'm not saying there are no white nationalists. I'm not saying there's no threat, but white nationalists are a tiny fringe of people uh, who cause very few terrorist acts or deaths. It does happen. But when you look at the the tens of millions of people in this country who are white males and the percentage of them that are white nationalists, it is quite small. Um, but the, the, the point was raised about how, well, you know, there's there's a false equivalency being drawn here. Here is how Andy Noh, who was just attacked by these people of Antifa, they could have killed him. I mean, brain hemorrhage means that it was a severe enough injury that if it had been a little worse, you know, maybe he would have died. Um, I saw Andy recently a couple of days ago, and he's, he's doing fine. But I thought that Andy had a very eloquent and very worthwhile uh, response on my old show. And, and here's, here's what I, I wanted to play a, a good chunk of it. Here's what Andy had to say on Rising. You're creating a sort of false equivalency. Because Antifa, for all their horrible, inexcusable behavior, to our knowledge, they've never killed anyone. 
Whereas on the right, in the white supremacist movement, another fringe movement, you actually have people who have been murdered by white supremacists. Chris Wray, director of the FBI, was just on Capitol Hill saying that is the number one threat in terms of domestic terrorism in the country. My concern is there's a blind spot when it comes to far left militancy. And whereas in recent years, we don't may, we don't, may not have the same body count parity in this country. Mm-hmm. My parents came to the United States as political refugees from Vietnam, and they actually lived through a Marxist revolution and were sent to labor camp and re-education camp. So borrowing some of the language of my detractors, I have a lived experience that informs me <laughs> mm-hmm. of my coverage of Antifa. Yeah, which is a real thing. Yeah. And to your point about um, there's been no deaths related to Antifa, Unfortunately, that's changed now. Just a week and a half ago, this didn't get very much attention. An Antifa militant in Tacoma, Washington, which is close to Portland, firebombed a government facility. That's right. He attempted to, according to police, ignite a 500-gallon propane tank, and he had a rifle that he allegedly aimed at Tacoma police and was killed in the process, and he left a manifesto. So there has been a casualty so far. Excellent stuff from Andy here. We should have him back. I've, we've obviously had him on the show before, but I'd like to have Andy back soon. Let, let's take the two primary points that he makes here. Let's let's take them one by one. Let's start with the second one first. This, this uh, attack on an ICE facility by a guy who was armed and trying to blow up the building... This this attack was done explicitly in the name of Antifa. Antifa members of in his area were praising it and saying that what he did was was uh, you know an act of bravery and for the movement and you know death to fascists and all this craziness. And it got oh and also it mentioned specifically uh, concentration camps at the border. So borrowing from the. A completely reckless and irresponsible language of Ocasio-Cortez when describing what's going on at our southern border. And when you look at this now, you say, okay, well, how much coverage did this get? Compare the coverage of that incident, say, with the incident where a guy had sent uh, pipe bombs in the mail, which I've I've still never really found out if, if they were inert devices or if they really could have worked i've seen different answers on that Uh, but the that that was a national crisis where we all were supposed to be uh you know living in constant fear of the possibility of these pipe bombs showing up it was was a, a national crisis with this guy nobody was killed or even harmed i mean what he did is highly illegal and the guy's going to go to prison for a very long time but Look at the cover. I'm just saying the coverage disparity of that incident with a guy who actually showed up with a gun and tried to blow up a building full of federal federal officers and did get killed by them in a gunfight. Otherwise, he probably would have been able to blow up the propane tank and shoot a bunch of people. And who knows what would have happened? They, they didn't even touch. They didn't even really touch that story. I, I, I cannot even remember seeing it uh, a day after it happened on any non-Fox cable network. I, I mean, I can't, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I just, I, I can't remember. And I watch the news all day. So you have the coverage disparity issue, which is one point here that Andy makes, I think is very important, very powerful. Then there's also this, when he talks about, uh, well, leftist ideology 
body count. Now what you have is, okay, we were in the age of radical Islam, which is it's its own ideology, although there's a lot of crossover between leftist thought and radical Islam. It's anti-colonialist. It is viewed as a faith tradition and extremism that is predominantly non-white. So there's an identity politics component uh, component of of jihadism. Uh, but we were in a period where that was clearly the biggest, you know, 9-11 and, and thereafter and, and the run up to 9-11. Now we're in this relative lull in major terrorist acts on U.S. soil. And so they keep saying, well, most of the investigations are of white nationalists. That's what we've heard recently. As I've told you, one, there are a whole lot more white people than there are uh, white non-Muslims in this country than there are Muslims. Uh, so you would expect there to be more investigations of white nationalists if that was really a thing. But beyond that, I mean, meaning if that was really the threat that they say it is. Um, but beyond that, there's a, you know, looking at the problem right now, you also should take into account what leftist ideology has done globally. Right. Because the same way that the, the global jihadist movement attacked in the United States in various times, but it was also part of a cohesive ideology, far left ideology in the form of Marxism and authoritarian statism under the guise of social justice has a body count stretching into the hundreds of millions. I mean, you know, how many how many when you add up uh, Stalin Mao, Great Leap Forward, the various wars of socialist revolution all over the place. So if we're really going to do this, what's the real threat? Well, then let's look at it on on a full scale. Let's not just limit it to a very small period in time and say, right now there's a relative lull in jihadism and, and leftist violence inside the United States. So clearly that's not a concern. Well, we fought two wars and had countless military operations and, and intelligence operations to try and get to the point we're at right now with the war on jihadism, what we used to call the global war on terror, and we meant Islamic extremist terrorism. So we, we just reached a kind of end. It, it, you know, it would be like saying right after the Second World War ended, yeah, you know, Nazism is like not a problem anymore. Okay, well, it's it, it was a really big problem, and it might be a really big problem again, but we just fought a really major conflict with them. Uh, but Andy bringing in the global body count and the, also just the global misery that's been created by leftism, I, I think is a very important point and it's astute. And if we're going to talk about what the real threat is, uh, the, uh, socialism ruins countries. Countries can endure limited socialism and you know l- l- limited intrusions into their market based on social justice and all this other stuff that the left adopts and identity politics and class struggle and class envy. Uh, but the further down the road to socialism you go, the worse the country becomes. I mean, that is that is proven all over the world over and over again. And Antifa says that they're anti-fascist, but they're the ones running around dressed in all black, punching people, attacking people, attacking journalists for the crime of showing what is really going on. So they act like fascists themselves, street thugs, that think that their ideology, their their political beliefs must be forced on others with fists and rocks and bats if necessary and still think that they're doing some uh, service to the country. And and you'll notice journalists across the spectrum who are, who are libs, which is over 90% of them, 
journalists do not have the same uh, disdain. They certainly they do not have the, the same personal dislike of Antifa that they do of what they believe are not just far right groups, but of the right wing in general. I mean, they, they think that anybody who's right wing is a bigger threat to the country than the most radical Antifa maniacs. And it's because we now are getting information from such different sources that it feels like we're living in different countries. And the country that the left lives in, Antifa's no big deal at all. And white nationalism, white nationalism is going to take over any moment. It's not. But they think it is. Uh, uh, our, our country should be more fearful um, of, of, of white men across our country because they are actually um, causing uh, most of the deaths within this country. I, I mean, I want to play that for you again. It's, it's, not, it's not true by the numbers. And, and if you make it on a per capita basis, then it's really not true. But Ilhan Omar can say that, and we're not supposed to think that that's racist, that's a problem. The country, here's a person who is an elected official saying that, that, that the United States should be fearful of white men. Fearful. And that's, that passes for acceptable discourse on the left. They would never criticize Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar is a big problem for them, folks, because, first of all, I do think that she's got a lot of answering to do about what happened with, I know she's getting divorced now, I think, from the second husband, and I don't care about her personal life insofar as, you know, that stuff goes, but... Marriage fraud, immigration fraud, those are real allegations that have been made against her. And they, and they do need to be answered. And she, does, she has not had answers for them yet. But the left can't do anything about Ilhan Omar to rein in her comments because she's a female, black, Muslim immigrant. So it, there are all these boxes that she checks that give her a, a shield of invincibility against left-wing criticism. They, they just won't say anything against her. Because then they feel like they're, you know, mansplaining to her, the patriarchy and all this other stuff. And she's not the only one that's a problem for the Democrats with the kind of things that she says. Here's another member of, I don't know, the the squad is too cool of a name for them. I agree with that, you know. Uh, But here's another name for them. uh, Rather, here's another um, quote from one of them, Rashida Tlaib, who's comparing, who's a member of the... BDS movement against Israel, boycott, you know, divest, sanction, essentially economic. These are people that want to do economic warfare against the state of Israel. That's what they, and they want the United States to wage economic war against the state of Israel. Here's how Rashida Tlaib, Democrat member of Congress, explains her view on this issue. So I can't stand by and watch this attack on our freedom of speech and the right to boycott the racist policies of the government and the state of Israel. The right to boycott is deeply rooted in the fabric of our country. Americans boycotted Nazi Germany in response to dehumanization, imprisonment, and genocide of Jewish people. In the 1980s, many of us in this very body boycotted South African goods. That's right. Sitting member of Congress is comparing. She's she's standing up in a public speech and comparing the boycott that she wants and also divestiture and sanctions. I mean, which is economic warfare. That's what we do to North Korea. She is comparing what she wants for the state of Israel to what we did to Nazi Germany 
and apartheid South Africa. This is what she thinks of, of the, uh, the state of Israel. It's, it's just stunning. It's just astonishing that someone could be so uh, delusional about what's really happening in the world and what kind of country Israel is. But the left, again, Rashida Tlaib, female, minority, Muslim, they will not, you know, they will, they will not rein in her comments. Nancy Pelosi has to tap dance around the situation. She can't really drop the hammer publicly and, and say, hey, you know, you need to you need to stop trashing. You need to stop letting people know that the left wing in America, the left wing, in the Democratic Party is soaked with anti-Semitism and anti-Israel bias. Soaked with it. That, that's what is going on in this country. Uh, one more thing, I'm, I'm here in New York City. Uh, there's been some, some uh, interesting back and forth with, with Trump and Bill de Blasio. And I think that, de, look, de Blasio is a total buffoon. If Anthony Weiner isn't sending photos of himself uh, to you know, underage girls... And getting and becoming a felony sex offender, Bill De Blasio doesn't become mayor of New York. So you have to always remember that he he is a a fluke as the mayor of this city. But uh, De Blasio told, well, he said that Trump is not welcome in New York. But here here is what Trump says about Bill De Blasio. Probably the worst mayor in the history of New York City. He's done a bad job, and now he's running for president, and people can't even believe it. He's a horrible mayor. Uh, the policemen it just and women cannot stand him. They don't respect him. They don't like him. I thought that was tragic, watching that scene. A couple of days ago, when I first saw it, I couldn't believe it. I said, let me see that again. I don't believe what I'm seeing. And I know New York's finest, and New York's finest, in fact, we were in touch with them today. They are devastated. The left doesn't like cops, folks. They just don't. You know who does like our law enforcement officers? Donald Trump. So there's that. All right, team, I know we didn't talk about the budget earlier this week. I'm not skipping past it. Don't think that I'm going to let that just slip through the cracks because... We are uh, slowly but surely mortgaging our financial future as a country. I'm not even sure it's that slow anymore, but we got a big budget that Trump has not vetoed. We're spending a lot of money, but I want to bring on a budget expert to address our friend Matty Doppler is with us now. She's a senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union. She knows budgets and all things therein. Matty, great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, so I know you're also a yogi, and I just wonder <laughs> that after you see the kind of spending that the federal government's going to engage in, do you then have to go into some poses to de-stress? I highly suggest anyone who's in public policy adopt a pretty serious yoga habit to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, there we go. We should get, you should do like uh, out on the lawn, you know, or whatever it is, the mall, not the lawn, good God, uh, Capitol Hill. You know, you get all the members of Congress. I think we'd have a more productive government if you could get them all to do downward dog. But all right, let's go with the latest here on the budget. First of all, what was in this budget that the media didn't care to cover for more than like five seconds? 
Okay, well, in order to talk about the budget that was just passed in the House yesterday, I want to back up a couple of years, back to a time when Republicans talked a lot about fiscal responsibility, and that was in 2011, because that sets the stage for all of our budget debates since. So in 2011, we had the Budget Control Act. House Republicans negotiated with the Obama White House in order to cut $1.2 trillion in spending from federal baselines. And they did that a couple of ways. So first we had uh, the, the budget caps that were put into place over the following 10 years. And then there was a sequester. And both of these mechanisms were intended to instill fiscal discipline, not simply because they would create less spending over the course of the decade, but because they were divided into two different tranches. One was in non-defense discretionary spending, and one was in uh, defense discretionary spending. The reasoning being, of course, that Republicans were very good about being fiscally prudent when it came to non-defense spending, uh, but they had a little bit of a more difficult time swallowing cuts to defense spending. And of course, we know Democrats would like to continue to plus up non-defense budgets. So how that has played out over the last several years is that after that agreement, which was bipartisan, passed with bipartisan support in Congress and, of course, signed into law by President Obama, now, over the last several years, Democrats and Republicans, every time a new budget deadline rolls around, thanks to the Budget Control Act, we see Democrats and Republicans join hands and agree to higher levels of spending because neither want to see the cuts come into effect between their major objectives, whether it's defense or non-defense spending. So now we arrive here in 2019. We're almost a decade out from the original Budget Control Act. And what do we do? We talk a lot about how Republicans and Democrats can't get anything done. There's all this divisiveness in Washington. The one thing they can do is link arms and agree to get rid of the last remnants of spending control that were in place. And that's where the budget, the, the budget agreement that the House passed yesterday and we expect the Senate to pass next week comes into play. And the sequester, just for ever listening, if memory serves, Maddie, and we were talking about this speaking of 2011, like back in 2011, yeah. uh, Maddie and I, if I recall, we're talking about this so if the sequester was a decrease in the increase in spending and there has been a quiet bipartisan agreement that that's just too painful you know and and that's true and i want to be somewhat generous even if republicans don't deserve it which is the 2011 budget control act was significant because Republicans and Democrats lived underneath it for the first two years without editing uh, the restraint that was put into into control there. And I think that that's significant because, as you know, the laws in politics are generally dictated by inertia. So getting Republicans at least committed to the idea of scrutinizing defense spending the same way we scrutinize discretionary spending and, by the same token, getting Democrats to agree to decreasing that non-defense discretionary spending, that was significant. That really set the slate for the opportunity to continue to instill some fiscal discipline in federal budget. And there were, and there were some opportunities to do that. We saw that with the debt limit a couple of years later. It was used as a tool to continue to have a conversation about whether or not the size of government that we were currently dealing with was appropriate. Unfortunately, that instinct has certainly dimmed after 2013. And what we've seen consequently have been ways that we've rolled back those sequesters and those budget caps every single uh, time one of those deadlines. All right, so Doubles, what, what about yeah. what about this budget? How bad is it, and what's going to happen to us? How much time have we got left, Doc? <laughs> well, but I'm sorry to say that it's fatal. 
Uh, we just don't know how long the patient has. So these, uh, this budget deal goes into effect for the next two years. Over those two years, it will increase the spending by $320 billion. And that's just for those two years. Remember, Buck, as you said, spending deals are normally premised on the notion of decreasing the increase in spending over those two years. So if you're increasing those baselines for the next two years, that means future spending is built off those baselines, not the ones that you were operating under previously. So that will account for more than $2 trillion in new spending over the next 10 years. You know, and as a result of that, the if you break it down to the numbers for this year, you've got a 3% increase uh, for the defense discretionary budget. That'll end up at $738 billion just for 2020, uh, and a 4% increase for that non-defense discretionary budget at $632 billion for 2020. And there's been a lot of spin from both sides saying they got what they wanted out of that deal. At the end of the day, what you see is this, the suspension of the debt limit for two more years uh, that will allow the Congress to continue to borrow, to spend its way into oblivion, with little to no restraints on it uh, up until we hit the debt limit again in two, two years from now. So we're going to have, for, 20, for 2019, we're going to be over a trillion dollars, right? You're talking about for deficit? Yeah. Yeah, so the deficit will will crest a trillion dollars. And I do want to say, I think that the deficit has been uh, harangued in a way that is not particularly helpful. And I and I say that to talk to mean the deficit is just a number, a, 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 a somewhat useless number between two very meaningful numbers, right? The deficit is the delta between spending and taxes. You can have a tiny deficit and both of those numbers can still be too high. You can still be spending too much and taxing too much. What we have right now is we have a government that's certainly spends too much, even though we have taxes coming in around the historical um, uh, level that we would expect them to see, we would expect to see in a healthy economy. So the federal government has an overspending problem, non-undertaxing problem, and the deficit, when you hear politicians talk about the deficit, they tend to misuse this, uh, this tool to talk about, we need to get rid of tax cuts, we need to make sure that Americans are paying more into the system. You don't lose money by allowing Americans to keep more of their own money. You lose money by poor fiscal policy that creates barriers to growth. And that's certainly what we saw over the last couple of years. And one of those barriers to growth is too much government spending and the debt, because that will continue to weigh on our obligations in the future. Should we be scared, Maddie? It seems like neither party wants to deal with this problem. There's no political will. There used to be, when Obama was president, conservatives, the Tea Party, you mentioned 2011, 2012, this was a huge issue. Uh, now we're, what, $22 trillion, heading to $23 trillion in debt. We've had right. artificially low interest rates for a long time. We're in uncharted territory for this means for the economy. You know, I, I feel like you would, would, would agree that it's not going to be particularly satisfying if you and those like you who are saying that we're spending too much money, we're taxing too much out of, out of our citizens, but particularly if the debt bomb explodes, it's not going to be fun to be like, okay, we were right, but now the U.S. economy is tanking. That, that's exactly right, Buck. And, you know, I used to think that the Budget Control Act was the first step for us to start to get on the uh, serious fiscal footing that we needed to tackle some of these problems. Because discretionary spending, frankly, even though we spend a heck of a lot every year that Congress has to reauthorize, that's just a tiny bit of the budget. 
every year that we don't confront the problems with our entitlements and how much of our resources that they take up, those obligations get bigger and the debt they carry gets even wider from the amount of resources they have to take in. You know, this week, the House Ways and Means Committee held a hearing on how we fix Social Security. And their proposal, Democrats have put forward, is to increase the payroll tax for all American workers. So what that means now, I remind people that a lot of Americans don't pay income taxes. They don't make enough income. About 44% or so of Americans don't pay income taxes. But a heck of a lot of Americans, a majority of them, pay payroll taxes because that comes right out of your paycheck regardless of how much money that you're making. So when you're talking about increasing the payroll tax, which is what funds Social Security, you're talking about taxing all Americans regardless of how much money they make. And you're talking about taxing the poorest Americans the most because, of course, the payroll tax is very regressive. So I say all that, Buck, because I think that potentially the conversation over the coming months as we get into 2020 might get more Americans a little more interested in what's happening in Washington and concerned again about the debt because you see a lot of Democrats start to talk about what the proper role of government is and what they think government should be doing. Well, now, their I, perspective I, on, now, their perspective on it is extremely different than what we've heard from Republicans over the last several yeah, years. So now we, we, can, we can make the case, which is important. But, Maddie, just in case, I promise, for, for you, the, the hubs and the, and the baby on the way, I'll save room in the mega buck bunker for you guys, okay? <laughs> Thank you, and I appreciate it. Have a great weekend, Maddie Doubler. Everybody will be right back. programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the Buck Brief. China's been beating us badly for many years. Uh, President Obama did nothing, meaning O'Biden. I don't even think I have to say that anymore. They did nothing. And neither did, in all fairness to President Obama, nobody did. It was crazy. And uh, we had a deficit last year of $506 billion, billion with a B. And this has been going on for years and years and years. We rebuilt China, and they did a great job. I give them a lot of credit. I don't, I don't discredit them for what happened. I discredit our people that should have been doing what I'm doing right now. How is it going in this negotiation with China? How is the Trump administration doing on policy in East Asia across the board? we got our friend Gordon Chang joining us right now. He's got a great op-ed from this week in the Wall Street Journal. She, meaning Xi Jinping, changed my mind about Trump. The president defends not only U.S. sovereignty, but the entire world order. We have our friend Gordon Chang with us now. Gordon, thanks so much. Thank you, Buck. All right, let, let's start. I've got a few questions, including I want to get your take on where we are with North Korea, given the, some of the reporting from today. Uh, but f- what what do you mean by she changed your mind? How, how did how did the leader of China change your mind about U.S. China relations and the Trump presidency? When President about America first, and I thought it was provocative. And then in 2017 and 2018, he gave speeches at the U.N. General Assembly, and he dwelled on sovereignty. And I thought that was off-key, because sovereignty had been settled more than three centuries ago at the Treaty of Westphalia, where countries were recognized as sovereign. What Xi Jinping has done, he's been dropping hints for more than a decade that China is the world's only sovereign state. And his foreign minister in 2017 actually wrote a piece in an influential Communist Party newspaper, which made it clear that Xi Jinping believes that China is sovereign and nobody else is. So I believe now that President Trump's um, comments about sovereignty were absolutely essential, and we need to defend it, not just for ourselves, 
but for everybody else as well. I mean, this is a very interesting point, Gordon, and I just wanted you to extrapolate on it a little bit, that, that Xi Jinping and, and the Chinese uh, Communist Party sees China as the only truly sovereign state. What, what does that mean? It means that uh, Xi Jinping is going back to the imperial era, two millennia of emperors who believed that they ruled Tianxia, or all under heaven. They had the mandate of heaven. And and that meant that uh, neighboring areas were um, tributaries to the great celestial Chinese court. Xi Jinping has been talking in in that language. So, for instance, his 2017 New Year's message said, We Chinese believe that all people in the world are one under heaven. That's Tianxia language. But if, um, uh, you know, there's any ambiguity, his foreign minister wrote that Xi Jinping thought, and a thought in Communist Party lingo is an important ideological body of work. He wrote that Xi Jinping thought makes innovations on and transcends Western international relations thinking of the last 300 years. So if you take 2017 when this was written, you subtract 300 years, you almost get to 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, the the treaty that establishes today's international system of competing and cooperating sovereign states. Uh, The Chinese are now very clear that they believe that we're subjects of uh, Beijing. Everybody then would be a subject of Beijing, right? I mean, the the long term plan then is is total world domination in in the real sense of domination. Yes, I mean this is this is colonialism. You know, people talk about China's relations, for instance, with Africa as being neo colonialist. Well, that's not correct because if you believe that you're the world's only sovereign, it means that people in Africa are colonies of the greater Chinese court. And it's not just, of course, countries in Africa, it's everybody else on the planet as well. So this is, um, when you start to think about this, um, breathtaking, ludicrous, of course, but let's remember, this is what the Chinese are saying. They have put us on notice that this is the way that they view the world. Gordon, how is the administration doing? I think that it's doing, depending on the subject, I think that certainly with regard to China trade talks, and you started with a clip on President Trump, I think he's he's doing well. He's doing certainly much better than his predecessors, um, because you know, Trump is, is absolutely right that uh, President Obama and his predecessors before them um, took positions on trade with regard to China that um, were not uh, good for the American businesses, and that's why we're in the situation we are. Um, China's stealing U.S. intellectual property to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, perhaps as much as $600 billion. And we know that previous administrations either ignored the issue, that's George W. Bush, or took actions which they knew were ineffective, that's President Obama. So um, we need to do something. And people may not like the President Trump's tariffs, but We've got to do something to protect American innovation. Gordon, there's a report today uh, out from uh, the Wall Street Journal saying that government, U.S. government analysts estimate North Korea uh, may have created a, or developed rather 12 nuclear weapons since the first Trump Kim Jong uh, Kim Jong Un summit. What do you make of this? People are going to say, "Oh, he's." He's already failed. What, what do you think about how, that, how the North Korea negotiation is progressing? 
Yeah. Of course, we don't know, but um, 12 additional nuclear weapons um, is consistent um, with what we know about North Korea's ability to produce plutonium and to enrich uranium. You know, President Trump made it very clear what his policy was um, last June. He said he was going to give Trump, uh, Kim a one-time shot to disarm. I think we've been a little bit too patient. Um, you know, I, I think at some point President Trump is going to pivot. He's going to go back to a policy that was in effect through the middle of May of last year, which was really quite tough on the North Koreans and actually was quite effective. President Trump had the most effective policy on North Korea of any American leader. Um, but he sort of let the advantage fritter away. But Trump can go back to that policy of actually enforcing sanctions and putting the North Koreans in a very difficult position. That's what we need to do. Gordon Chang, everybody, you can check out uh, The Coming Collapse of China, his book. You also follow him on Twitter, Gordon C. Chang. Gordon, thanks so much for making the time. Have a fantastic weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Buck. Coming back in a second with Roll Call. Stay right there. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Friday roll call. Is it the best roll call? I don't know. It might be because it means that your weekend is either about to be or is already underway. And as producer Mark will tell you, everybody's working for the weekend. By the way, do we have to come up with a cooler name for you? Because Mark and Mike sound too close over the radio because people get you guys confused all the time. They're always like, tell producer Mike to do the thing that Mark is doing for Mike is, you know. Do we, did you have like a nickname in college? We might have to come up with something. Uh, I don't think I can say that on the radio what my nickname in college was. Wow. Were you a fraternity brother? No. All right. Just making sure. All right. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We shall get into it. Brian is up first for our double roll call session on this lovely Friday. Buck, you're right. The Cory Booker is a joker. He reminds me of an 11th grade overzealous Constantly acting drama student who has no concept of the real world. I uh, took a stab at sharing your podcast on Instagram. And guess what? My liberal friends freaked out about it. Uh, yeah, Brian, I know that that can happen sometimes. Uh, what can you do, my friend? Um, sorry about that. The libs do not necessarily love the Buck podcast. That is for sure. Wayne. Hey, Buck, great to have you back. Totally focused on the radio show. I cannot ex- imagine how exhausting doing both shows must have been. Watching the Mueller hearing, I had to laugh because Jerry Nadler reminded me so much of Newman from the Seinfeld TV series. If you have ever watched the package episode when Newman is interrogating Jerry about the damage claim on his stereo, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not as... You know, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but I'm actually more of a of a Friends guy than a Seinfeld guy. Ugh. I know Ugh. you can judge me. You should judge me for that. My fiance is the same way. I, I judge hate myself. It. She hates Seinfeld too. It's the worst. I don't hate Seinfeld, but I got to tell you something. If you go back and look at something, why is it that when you're in traffic, there's all the smog? Doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just not. It it, it was at the time. It was groundbreaking. It was edgy. It was clever. Now. I don't know. It still holds up. You think so? I think so. I mean, look, there's some great concepts. The bro, the man, Zier, the roommate switch, you know. Yeah. What, you know, there's, there's some stuff that people. Festivus is my man favorite Manhands. Manhands, yes. 
Yeah. Hmm? Anyway, I had a friend who told a girl on a date that she had hobbit hands. Oh, that's not a good idea. That did not go well. Yeah. I'm sure there was not a second date. He, he, indeed there was not. He meant it, he meant it, he loves the Lord of the Rings though, you see? He meant it in a nice way. I don't think there's a nice way to say that a girl has hobbit hands. Well, yeah, because you think of hobbit feet, which are kind of oversized and furry, and most women would probably think that hobbit hands and hobbit feet, you're going for the same vibe, and it's not good. I think hobbit and girl you're trying to, you know- Date, yeah. Date, not a good idea. It's a good, important safety tip from producer Mark. We're going to have to come up with a cool nickname for I mean, think about Russia's show. There's Mr. Snurdly. I got to find out how they came up with that name, by the way. I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but I don't think I want a nickname like that. You see this, guys? He's, he's negging. He's giving a thumbs down on nicknames. All right, fair enough. Roll call from John. I'm not sure where to start other than obvious shields high, my good sir. I'm a podcast listener ever since they became available before Man in the Moon, where I regrettably just missed seeing you. Congratulations on the well-deserved expansion of your universe of listeners. I tremendously enjoy every aspect of the show, especially those wonderfully rich portrayals of the historic battles where the fate of a civilization hung in the balance. Battles of Lepanto and Malta. Talk about the edge of one seat. Bravo. It's great radio. So I'll eagerly subscribe to any history history offering that is a spinoff of your show, as I suspect you enjoy creating them as much as we appreciate hearing them. John, I do, actually. If it, if it gives me an excuse for work to spend an entire weekend reading history books about a really cool battle, uh, that's, that's when I feel like my job is super fun. Speaking of one's uh, seat, great recommendations of books, videos, and watching, especially the Jack Ryan series. Talk about a person fighting the good fight, a true freedom fighter with great honor and integrity. Uh, you must forgive the audience upon seeing the similarities for thinking, yeah, Jack Ryan, just like Buck. I don't know if any of them think that, John, but I appreciate the idea. Uh, and thinking Tom Clancy surely had you in mind as he developed his character. I mean that seriously. Keep strong and loud. We who are not so eloquent appreciate your clear voice for what is right, not to mention very entertaining. Um, all right. John. I know John actually gave me a, a nom de plume here for him, but we can just go with John because that's a very, there's a lot of Johns out there. I think we all know that. Speaking of which, we got another John, one than the other. Uh, I was driving around Charleston, West Virginia, heard your show being broadcast a little after 7 p.m. Do you have any idea what station that might have been on in that area? Mark, do we know what station is in West Virginia that we, I, I think we're on a station there, but I don't remember which one. I should know, know this, I should know this by the, well, yeah, here's the thing. On some of the other shows, there are, there's the, you know, they have a list of all the stations and the Purdue, whenever someone calls in, you know, and the person goes, well, it's, uh, it's Bob who's calling in on the, you know, blah, 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 107.2. Uh, the, the host hasn't memorized all that. Usually the producers feed it to him in the break. I'm just telling you, unless it's a, it's a, you know, a, a huge station. I sit here, I'd be like, oh, what's up? KLBJ Austin or Whoa Whoa out in Fort Wayne or WCBM in Baltimore or KEIB out in Los Angeles or, you know, I mean, I, I can do this too, but I'm just saying, I don't have a producer feeding those to me. Uh, Mark, right? Um, Buck, check out your former co-host. Tearing up MSNBC for fake news. What happened? I didn't see this. This is on Fox News. Ex-MSNBC host Crystal Ball rips former network over Russian hoax. 
Rachel Maddow, you've got some explaining to do. This was published 23 hours ago. Wow, Crystal Ball. Look at this. You know, Crystal is my friend. So even though we don't agree on politics, she is my friend. And as you know, I, I think very uh, I think very highly of her. And and I and even if I didn't think highly of her as a friend or if I you know had some things that I really disagree with, I, I would not. I do not trash my friends even when I think they've made a, you know, made a mistake on something. As you know, that's a rule. I'm honest about that. Do not expect me to trash friends on my radio show. Uh, but there's nothing to trash here. This is great. This is from Fox News Today. Ex-MSNBC host Crystal Ball blasted her former network as not journalism and singled out the Rachel Maddow show on Thursday for floating wild conspiracy theories that blew up during former special counsel Mueller's testimony. Mueller's testimony before two House committees was largely considered a disaster for Democrats. The former MSNBC host, Crystal Ball, formerly host of The Hill with Buck Sexton, uh, said nearly all of her colleagues got swept up in the ratings bubble that was feverish Russia conspiracy theories and singled out some anchor she took that uh, that she said took things overboard. Hmm. Uh, Rachel Maddow, you've got some explaining to do, Ball said, before there was there were some damning facts relating to the Russia probe. It does not feel like a set uh, like a damning set of facts when for months MSNBC built segment after segment, show after show on building anticipation for a big reveal. Yeah, Crystal. Look at this. She's right. Good stuff from Crystal on how MSNBC is peddling fake news. So there we go. Thanks for the heads up. uh, Intrepid listener, Mark. I very much appreciate it. See, that was great. Good job. I got I got to send Crystal a text message. Say, well done on calling out the uh, MSNBC. David, listen to the podcast. De Blasio is inept, but Stoney in RVA is helpless. Who's Stoney? And what's RVA? Do we know? I don't know. There's, I don't know. I, I, I missed that one. I'll just skip it then. Uh, Ryan asks, Buck, who do you think could win the GOP in 2024? Ryan, I think, hmm, I think that if you're looking at 2024, let's assume Trump wins the next election, which we shouldn't really assume because it's a, it's a very far, very far away and a lot of things can happen and all that stuff. But right now, if the election were, were held, Trump would win. Okay. So there's. There's that. If the election were held tomorrow, Trump would crush any of these Democrat opponents. I don't care what the polls say. Trump would win. Uh, as to who would win in 2024, you know, there's some very the, the, the GOP has a deep bench of serious people. Unlike the Democrats, the semi-serious people among the Democratic Party, like uh, you know Hickenlooper and um, uh, Congressman I'm blanking on Delaney from Maryland. The, the I'm not saying they're serious, but they're you could have a conversation with them about public policy where you don't think you're talking to a crazy person. Maybe on some issues, but on a lot of issues, you'd be able to say, okay, we disagree on this, but at least we're trying to get, I mean, you're speaking to Warren and Sanders and they're just, they're in a whole other universe. I mean, they're operating, uh, but the GOP has a deep bench of very serious people, very serious contenders. You have individuals like um, uh, Nikki Haley, whom I know some of you might think is too establishment and all that, but uh, there's Nikki Haley, and then there's hey, you look. I'm on the right. Here's the thing. I, I think Ted Cruz believes he's going to run again, and I think he's just decided to lay relatively low while Trump finishes out his eight years 
And then he's going to in the second Trump term, he's going to try to seize the reins of the party again. And I think Ted Cruz thinks he's going to run again. And uh, I don't think Marco Rubio really has presidential aspirations anymore, but I could be wrong. I'm just basing this on my gut instinct. I'm not even really using any of my sources for this. Yeah, I'm going to say it. Dan Crenshaw. People think Dan Crenshaw is going to be the next GOP president, and I could see that for sure. Um, he certainly he certainly got the background, smart enough, patriot, loves his country, you know, beautiful family, um, wounded warrior himself. Uh, there's it could definitely be Dan. I mean, if you're asking me to put money on who the next GOP president would be after Trump, after Trump finishes term two, of course. The next GOP guy that I would see stepping up would be Dan Crenshaw. I think he could win. I think he could win. Um, you know, put Dan Crenshaw up against any of these Democrats, and they just look at what a look at how truly lopsided that comparison in really all respects would be as politicians and as patriots. So, roll call part two is next. All right, continuing on with your thoughts here. On the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, by the way, if you're listening on the radio and you want to make sure you never miss a show, please do subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show on iTunes. Uh, we have fun things planned. I think I've mentioned to you all that starting in September, this show will be streamed. We will have a streaming platform. It is very exciting. I cannot tell you more than that because we're going to have a, an official announcement. But all three hours of the Buck Sexton Show is going to be viewable on on the video on your phone and then we'll be putting out clips and this is all part of our plan for freedom hut domination of the world mark right hello buck love your show mark you know how to open up a message i get most of my political acumen from you and that bongino guy well i'm i'm in excellent company and you have excellent taste mark i have a favor to ask of you my father will be 91 next month. He is a bona fide hero serving 28 years in the U.S. Navy. He enlisted at 15 years of age and saw action in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam and rose to the rank of lieutenant commander. He was also on the Admiral's flagship during the Cuban Missile Blockade. We believe he's the youngest surviving World War II veteran, but really have no idea how to confirm it. He's now living in an assisted living facility in Augusta, Georgia, and it would mean a lot if you could give him a shout out during roll call. His name is Richard Tuckscherer. Uh, well, let me just say, Mr. Richard Tuckscherer, down in uh, Augusta, Georgia, thank you so much for your service, so, uh, service for your uh, illustrious career, and for all you've done for this country. And God bless, and we appreciate you listening to the show. Max. Hey, Buck, you get excited about paying taxes and the possibility of getting thrown in jail for not paying them. Good news. A scoop for you as significant as what you'd see on Drudge. The federal income tax is an excise tax, a tax on privilege. You used to be encumbered by it. Uh, if you do, you'll study blah, blah, blah. Your show did cut the mustard and pass the muster as well. There is no cut the muster. Uh, shields high. This is the highest actionable intelligence. I've studied this for three years. All right. Well, thank you, Max. Yeah, the cut the mustard versus pass muster thing. I'm just going to leave that for now. I, some of you are, I, I, I can only hope to keep up with the, the knowledge of, of lexicography that you all bring to this show. Angela. Love the hearing, yes, you love the hearing yesterday. Jordan Radcliffe and the lady from Arizona were on fire. Proud Freedom Hut 
member. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see what we have here. Kristen writes, is there a more annoying voice than AOC's? I cringe every time you play her. Politicians shouldn't be allowed to have whiny voices. Well, Kristen, I agree that her voice is a bit cringeworthy, but I don't know how we would enforce the no whiny voices rule. So there you have it. Uh, let's see here. Jar. Jar, who looks like the kind of guy that if things ever got uh, a little dicey in the back alley behind the bar, you'd want Jar to have your back. I could tell you that. He writes, Hulk versus Thing. First off, producer Mark is wrong. Uh-oh. He's calling you out, producer Mark. They're both Marvel characters and have fought multiple times. Hulk wins vast majority of them. Second, don't worry, Mark. We're gonna let you. We're gonna. Mark's gonna have his say. Second, Marvel actually provides two characters perfect for the analogy. In universe, the Juggernaut is known as the unstoppable force. The Blob, who manipulates gravity, is known as the immovable object. From Jar, producer Mark, what do you say about his uh, comic? Assessment. Well, I, I guess I did get it wrong that the thing and the Hulk, they are in the same universe. But I, I did say Hulk would win. So I got that ding, right. Ding, ding, I What's did get something right. The assessment of which hero comes out on top in the fight, I would agree with you on exactly. that. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, apparently they are both. Mar- I, I Look, I didn't correct you. I, I, I thought they were both Marvel characters, too, so I forget this. But uh, that's going to be it for the show today, folks. I uh, hope you have a fantastic weekend. Thank you for joining me here. I have an exciting announcement about next week for you, but I can't make it until Monday or Tuesday. But let's just say you're going to probably get to see Mr. Buck wreck some libs in a new place on your television next week for a day, not forever. Uh, But it's going to be fun, assuming it happens. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening. Shields high.